Where Kindness Lives is designed to cultivate a kinder world by helping to inform and inspire. Hosted by Jenny Sager from Nextdoor, the neighborhood network connecting you to what truly matters so you can belong. We'll chat to the most thought-provoking individuals paving the way for positive change and hear from neighbors who deliver small acts of kindness every day. So come on a journey to where kindness lives. Hi, I'm Jenny Sager. As a child, you get asked what you want to be when you grow up. For me, I loved animals and wanted to be a vet. But for many, the answer is an astronaut. That's what our guest today said as an eight-year-old. And guess what? He actually did it. John Harrington was the first Native American to fly in space. He's worked on the International Space Station and did almost 20 hours spacewalking. So how does kindness help you achieve something out of this world? Buckle up, because in three, two, one. John, it is so great to have you here today. I feel like I have to start by explaining how we met because you just instantly exuded warmth and kindness, which is what this podcast is all about. And I was in NASA with my kids and you were speaking. We did the uh, breakfast with an astronaut. And so we got to hear your story. And your story, I have to say, was like, by far, I've been to a lot of work conferences and a lot of, you know, seen a lot of speakers around the world. And it was one of the most inspiring talks that I think I've ever been to. And in fact, I don't, I didn't tell you this because I didn't see you at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, my middle son was like literally crying tears of happiness. And he was like, mom, that was the best day of my life. And oh my goodness. That is so he, sweet. That is so kind. Like, that is so kind of you. That is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. You're such a warm and kind person. And you have this amazing smile for the listeners around the world that can't see you. That just kind of, when you walk in a room, I think everyone felt that that morning when you walked in, that you were just, it was going to be a, a really good conversation. So we're excited to have you here today. I really appreciate that. Thank you. So we want to start by asking you, what does kindness mean to you? What does kindness mean to me? Um, I think it's the nature of being able to care about others, you know, that someone's in front of you and, like you said, exude that, that warmth that hopefully gets returned, even if it doesn't, you know, at least that's what you're putting out. I just like to think of something that's uh, part of your heart. I think kindness comes from the heart. And if uh, people can see that in you and recognize it in you, Hopefully they pass it on to others. I think that's that idea of uh, giving back or, or paying forward. Definitely. Well, I want to go back to the, uh, well, I won't say the beginning. We're not going all the way back to the beginning, but I want to talk to you about the selection process that you go through when you're applying to be an astronaut. Because I remember you saying that in your cohort, there was about 18,000 applicants. Is that right? Not in, my, not in my cohort. My cohort was way before the digital world. So uh, you know, it was all paper, paper applications. I think there were probably about 3,000 folks that maybe applied. You know, that was both, you know, civilian and military. And then I applied through through the Navy. Since I was a naval officer, I applied through the Navy. And that was my path into, you know, NASA getting my application. And that's still a lot because they're obviously only picking a handful of people. And how much does kindness and your personality play into that selection process? And it's one thing you can you can write you know, your background and your accomplishments and your GPA and all the things you've done in your your career, but I think it comes down to sitting across the table from fifteen people, asking you why you you know tell us everything you've done since you're in high school. That's the question. You know, you sit down for that one hour interview, tell us everything you've done since you're in high school. They know you're fully qualified for the job, otherwise they wouldn't waste their time. You know, you sitting in that room. 
So I think what they want to know is, is this person that somebody that we can work with? Is this person has a kind personality? Are they, you know, do they have ability to communicate well with others? Do you think they can work well with others? Um, and just, you know, the nature of, is this somebody that, uh, you know, you'd want to, you want to be with. And I think that's what the, the, uh, uh, the interview comes down to. And were you always like that? Were you kind of always somebody who could exist on a team and work well with others? Or was that something <laughs> that you learned through life? <laughs> oh, boy, I was a loner. I was shy. I was introverted. You can tell, right? I'm a pretty introverted guy. <laughs> uh, no, back, back in the day, you know, growing up, I was, you know, when I went to college, I was probably the only, I didn't know anybody when I went to the University of Colorado. My friends I went to school with uh, in Colorado when I was a, when I was a youngster uh, didn't go to college. And so I found myself at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs doing it on my own. Out of my element, uh, quiet, reserved, didn't want to talk to anybody. It wasn't until uh, I built some type of self-confidence in what I was capable of doing. In my case, that was the rock climbing that I mentioned during my talk. It gave me the self-confidence to realize that I was good at something and that I could accomplish something hard, both mentally and physically. And that, that changes a person, I think, in a lot of ways. And do you have any tips for anyone, whether adult or child, that's kind of struggling with that and, and is maybe not the best team player yet or is struggling in, the, in that kind of get along with others space? You find something to do that you, you're dependent on somebody else. And certainly in rock climbing, in my case, you're dependent on the person you're climbing with. And you have to value that they are doing what they need to do to keep you from getting hurt and vice versa. So there's this confidence that comes from uh, you know, putting your life in somebody else's hands. And I think certainly from the military perspective, you know, as a, as a patrol plane commander, as an instructor pilot, as a mission commander, you know, you are responsible. And I think when you exude that confidence, that brings other people on board. And I think that allows them to have confidence as well that they can accomplish something. You are also the first Native American to fly to space. How did that make you feel? And did that add a lot of extra responsibility onto your shoulders? Well, you know, early on, I didn't realize, you know, when I first came to NASA, um, one of the ladies, Estella Gillette, who was on my interview committee, she was head of the Equal Opportunity Office there at the Johnson Space Center. She said, you know, you're Chickasaw, aren't you? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, you know, you're the first member of a fairly recognized tribe that we've had in the astronaut corps. And I didn't know that going in. And then I found myself in a position of, I think, of a lot of responsibility being in a role where people did not have that uh, role model before. And I, I take that very serious. And I think if somebody can look to you and say, hey, that guy's kind of like me, you know, he's had some struggles. He's you know, had difficulties in life, but he's overcome those. People have helped him and, and look where he is. And I think that uh, what I found, um, you know, being the astronaut corps, it's given the opportunity to share that story with others. And you are giving back to that community now and so much that you do. Can you talk a little bit about that? I didn't realize the amount of attention that it would get, you know, in the astronaut corps. I remember the, 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 before I flew, some folks at the Kennedy Space Center said, hey, John, who do you want to sing at your launch? And I went, what? You know, who sings at a launch? I never I hadn't heard of that before. And they said, well, we want to honor your heritage by bringing somebody in and having a celebration at uh, Rocket Garden or at the visitor center. You know, when you were down there with your kids, you saw the rockets. They had a they actually had a celebration there for me during launch. I was on the launch pad, though. I didn't, you know, I didn't, they wouldn't let me attend, right? Uh, but I invited Buffy St. Marie, who's Cree, uh, Canadian, to come and sing at my launch. Long story there. I met her years ago and kind of made a fool of myself with a comment about a movie that I watched as a kid that she happened to be the uh, Academy Award a songwriter for that the movie called Officer and Gentleman. <laughs> 
And I didn't know that, you know, insert mouth, open, you know, open mouth, insert foot. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I asked her to come and sing at my launch. And so having that part of the cultural experience that people could participate in was, uh, was remarkable. And I was very thrilled that NASA had done that. Some of the other things that you spoke about when I saw you talk that day that I think really stuck with me was that this was not, although I did read that you, you did at some point say you wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid, right? So that was something that was planted there somewhere, wasn't it? Yep. I dreamed about it as a kid, but you know, like a lot of kids, you dream about doing something, but you may not have believed that it's something that's actually possible. And so, uh, you know, I had the dream as a kid, but it wasn't until much later in life, you know, during my Navy career that I realized that, you know, I was on a path, if I chose to go down that path, uh, you know, go to test pilot school, get a master's degree and, and put forth that effort that I would make myself eligible for it. You know, I didn't think I'd get selected. Honestly, I never thought I'd get selected. Um, but I think if you don't, you don't apply, you won't, you'll never get a chance, right? And so- That's what, It's uh, my favorite if you, saying, if you, if you don't try, you definitely don't get, right? You I just got to try. If, if you don't, you won't. That's kind of how I nail it down into a very short little soundbite. And I, I did. And I went down that path. And it certainly wasn't, you know, all my own effort. It was the people around me and the people that encouraged me. And I listened. And, and I'm very fortunate that, uh, that I did. So I'll go back to your previous question. What would I say to those that are having struggles? You know, believe in yourself, but realize that there are people out there watching you. And there are people out there paying attention to you. And there may be somebody that comes along and some point in your life and says, hey, you think you I think you should do this. And we used to call it a, a, a foot stomper in the Navy. You know, you stomp your foot. You need to, you, you know, believe this. And that's the answer, right? And so uh, when somebody stomps your foot, it's very important that you listen and then make that decision. So You're listening to Where Kindness Lives, Next Door's global podcast. And our guest today is NASA astronaut John Harrington. John, I want to go back to the feeling that you felt the first time that the shuttle took off. How did you feel? What was going through your mind? (laughs) It was a pretty bumpy ride. You know, it takes eight (laughs) and eight and a half minutes to get to orbit. And the first two minutes are on the solid rocket boosters. And those are a solid fuel. And so as they burn, it's a very, it's a very violent, some would say real violent, but it's shaky. It shakes the whole vehicle. Because once you light them, you can't shut them off. And so guaranteed you're going somewhere. For the first two minutes, you're going somewhere. So two minutes and five seconds, they fall away. And it gets very smooth. And I was told it's going like going from a bumpy dirt road to an electric train. That's what they say it feels like. But a very fast electric train. And what was unique about our launch um, and it's really fun. I flew with a guy that was sixth flight in space. Jim Weatherby was the commander. He had flown five times as a commander and once as a pilot, so which is pretty incre- incredible. But, you know, when he says something like, gee, I've never felt that before, and he's done it six times, you kind of <laughs> you pay attention. So once we came off the solids, uh, we, uh, there was this like little boingy, boing, boing motion. The vehicle was like lurching a little bit. And it turns out that that, well, I found out later that with the payload we had, just the dynamics of that payload in the payload bay caused that type of sensation. And when the commander tells you he'd never felt that before, yeah, <laughs> you pay attention. <laughs> Nothing you can do about it. You just, you know, you're on for the ride. So it was, uh, it was like, say, real smooth, kind of a, you know, boingy ride up to, up to, uh, to space. And it was about eight and a half minutes uh, later, you know, from launch to eight and a half minutes, the engines quit. You go from three G's to zero G's instantaneously. And, uh, and it's not looking out the window that caught my attention. It was letting go of my checklist and watching it hover in front of my face. And, and I've <laughs> never done that before. 
And then you realize when you take your seatbelt off, you know, you're hovering and now you got to hang on. And now what we take for granted on a daily basis, now you have to realize how do you stay in one spot to do your job? Because you run out of hands pretty quickly, right? One hand, the checklist, one hand, hang on. Now you've run out of hands to throw switches. So it takes a little bit of getting used to. And what about your first spacewalk? What was that like? Um, it was pretty fun. <laughs> Mike, uh, Mike L.A., Mike Lopez Alegria was EV1. I was EV2, extravehicular 2. That was me. And I was the second one out of the hatch. Mike went out head first, and I came out feet first. And I remember looking, trying, just craning my head, looking down to look between my toes out into the sea of earth down below me, about 220 miles, roughly. And then I realized when you come out, I've always been told that some people have a sensation of coming down below the space station. Other people have a sensation of coming up and out of the space station because gravity is not telling you which way is down. Your mind is the one that tells you. And everybody's different. And I felt I was going down, uh, coming out, looking down at the earth, you know, 220 miles straight below me. And uh, it held on kind of tight <laughs> for a little bit. But you realize the tighter you hold on, the more tired you're going to get. And so you just hang on with a little bit, you know, gently and move around and learn what it's like to to move in a weightless environment where there's no air, there's nothing to slow you down, nothing to work against. And uh, it takes a little bit of getting used to, just a, a few minutes, not not long, but um, And remarkable. does it, at some point, does it become just a job at some point, like all of our jobs, or is it still that exciting every time you're out there? Well, imagine you're doing something and everybody's watching you. Every Every movement you make, somebody's watching you, they're listening to you. And you, you've, been, you've been tasked with a role that people have spent millions of dollars on to get you there. And then you have responsibility to do the job right. You know? And so the idea of ignoring that is not the right. You just don't do that. You focus on your job. You do, you do what you're trained to do. And sometimes things don't work out that way. And so you have to you know, go off the checklist because it didn't work out the first time. And you realize that common sense plays a big role in, in what you do. And so uh, you work hard. And as my cam commander said, he said, work really hard. And when you're done, you do your, you do your job well, then you can play. What's the version of playing up there? <laughs> oh, you play with your food. You play with your tools. You look out the window. You, you, you do somersaults. You know, some guys have grabbed the power tool and held on to the end of it while a guy squeezed a trigger and you spin around the power tool. We didn't do that. You know, it's a million-dollar power. But some folks have. And uh, it's on video. It's kind of fun to watch. Was there anything you saw that surprised you from up there? Anything that stood out specifically? Well, I remember, <laughs> I love us. I flew over Sydney, Australia, right? In the middle of those big fires we had back in 2000, 2002. Yeah. Uh, it was your summer of 2002. I remember flying over looking at just all these fires over the, uh, the uh, east coast of Australia there. And I remember looking down and just thinking how devastating that must be. Because, you know, I live in a place where there's wildfires. And, and mm. one of the most dangerous things we have live in the mountains of Montana. And so uh, I hopped on a bicycle. It's really funny. I hopped on a bicycle. We have a cyclergometer on the space shuttle. And I'm, you, you look out the overhead windows. And I hopped on that bicycle pedaling over Sydney. I pedaled to Los Angeles. It took me about 20 <laughs> minutes. I did get wet. It's pretty cool. And then I got out of the, I, I hopped out of the uh, cyclergometer. I floated to the window. I grabbed a, a, a Nikon camera with a 400 millimeter lens and I was taking pictures over Colorado. I mean, it was oh just that quick. Oh and so gosh. to be able to be able to see that from that perspective and, and see Australia from just from that beautiful view, but then also realize how devastating it was for, for a lot of folks there. So your heart goes out when you see something like that. Where kindness lives, we'll be back in a moment. 
Hey, you know what's really great for earning some extra cash? Nextdoor's for sale and free. Basically, it's where you go on and you can sell things that you have lying around the house. You can even swap them with neighbors, like household appliances, gardening items, pet supplies, furniture. You can really put anything on there. It's really simple. Just look around your house, see what you're not using anymore, and I bet somebody is going to want it in the neighborhood. And guess what? It also keeps waste out of the landfill and helps the environment, which is really, really awesome. And it's so easy to use. Just download the free Nextdoor app or go to nextdoor.com and start turning that trash into treasure right now. You're obviously in close quarters with people for quite some time, more so than any of us would do in a, in a normal work setting. Going back to kindness, how do you kind of make sure you stay kind to each other when you're stuck in those close quarters for a while? Well, it goes back to that, uh, that initial interview. Do you want to go to space with somebody for two weeks and not beat the crap out of them? You know, are they <laughs> going to get you so mad and so angry because of how they, you know, are they, you know, do they work well with others? I mean, that's what it comes down to. And I think the neat thing about being able to fly with my crew is we all got along and we all valued that each other would do their job and do their job to the best of their ability. And that comes through. And I think how you, uh, you know, how you work as a team, you know, there's a 1% rule in any group. I don't care if it's the astronaut corps, if it's, you know, attorneys, whatever, you know, sometimes there's somebody that's got a little bit of a personality that kind of grates on you. And I was very fortunate that did not happen on my crew. It's happened on other crews. I know that. And I, one thing I'd be, would be very difficult is to realize you've flown, you the one chance, if you get one chance to fly in space and it's a miserable experience, then it's just not no. fun, you know? And so, yeah. you know, you work well with others, be kind and, uh, you know, and you know, things will all work out. Was there anything um, that stands out to you from one of your times in space as a particularly uh, stressful moment, let's say, where you thought, you know, <laughs> maybe you didn't know what to do or you kind of had to, you just talked about getting out of your comfort zone. So was there a moment up there that really kind of pushed you oh, out of that zone? Oh, yes, there was. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I went out to one work site. Remember, I, I think it was our second spacewalk. Yeah, probably our second spacewalk. And I went out to this work site, the very end of the space station, and we had to remove uh, this big pole was mounted on the side of the, the side of the station. And we had to take this, we had to put a big antenna on this, on this stanchion and then move that stanchion to the very top of the space station on the truss that we installed and uh, bolt it down. And I got out there and every, every time I did that in training, I had to use a certain size tool. And I had a big power tool, a big battery operated power tool, a guy in my class invented. And I had to have a certain size extension on it. And we had two extensions. One was a nine-inch rigid extension, and one was a six-inch extension that had a little wobble socket on the end of it. And I was supposed to have a nine-inch rigid extension when I went out there because I had to go through a certain size hole to unbolt something. Well, I get out there, and Paul Lockhart reads a checklist and says, John, you need the nine-inch rigid extension. I looked down. I said, sorry, Paco. I've got the six-inch wobble, right? Kind of a joke. And uh, I went, oh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> my kids heard me and I realized that I had taken out the wrong tool and Mike LA was, he goes, okay, well, where's the, where's the other tool way back in the airlock oh, 30 minutes. Oh, I just, I felt, you know, I felt so bad. I'm hanging out there. You know, the, the world is watching you. And I just made it. I made the one thing you fear most making a mistake. You don't fear dying. You fear making a mistake. And I've made a colossal mistake. And I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Have you ever, you ever seen the, the, other, the, far, uh, car side, the far, uh, cartoon, The Far Side? Have you ever seen yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, love yeah, there's it. One, there's one where a deer is standing behind a tree, and there's a hunter, and he goes, oh, 
I've got to, what I've got to think, I've got to think, 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 what I'm going to do, the hunter's <laughs> over there, right? It's exactly, I felt like that deer behind the tree. And I realized that everything that I'd done, everything I'd trained to do, that same tool, I didn't need that tool. And all if I just removed this little piece, the thing that was in the way and used the tool I had, then I could, I could do it all without even, and put the thing back on and fine. My only had, had to worry about was how to tether to it and keep it from floating away. And I had that in my mind. And I said, well, I called to Houston and I said, Houston EV2. And Barb Morgan was my Capcom, I think. Barb was the uh, backup to Krista McAuliffe, the teacher in space back in the 80s. And Barb was in a class after me, and she was my Capcom. Wonderful, wonderful person. And I said, Barb, this is what I want to do. And she says, okay, stand by. Because she has to talk to the people that trained me, you know, the people that just now are saying John's an idiot because John screwed up. And, and they said, well, what if he does it this way? So I, I waited. I'm hanging out there looking at the earth go by for the longest standby of my life. And then Barb comes back and says, sounds great, John, go for it. Mm-hmm. I was done, you know? <laughs> so this, this really stupid mistake that I'd made, I solved it on my own without anybody telling me how to do it. And I think I went from feeling incredibly bad to feeling incredibly good that I had the wherewithal and had the common sense to know that just because I've been doing it this way for the entirety of my training, I didn't need to do it that way. And in the heat of the moment, I figured it out. I think all of us that have difficult jobs to do when things don't go as, as they're planned, that you have to be able to be creative, think on your feet, be a problem solver, because it may be the only chance you get to do that. And when everybody's watching you, it adds just a little bit of tension. You know? Oh my gosh. And, and, I, and I figured it out. Yeah. What is it like just kind of, I guess, walking outside and looking up at the moon, for example, and just thinking to yourself, like, huh, I've been there, you know, it's kind of the same. Well, I got asked the other day, what's it, I got asked the other day, what's it like on the moon? I'm going, hey, dude, I'm, I'm, I was 14 years old the last time somebody went to the moon. You were 14 yeah. when you went to the moon? No, no, I've, <laughs> I've never been to the moon. And it's, it's kind of fun. I'm, you know, here in Hawaii, and I walked out and I looked up past one of the palm trees and I could see the moon. And I realized that between me and the moon, there's a rocket ship going to the moon right now. And that's a pretty awe-inspiring thing because I grew up to that. I grew up, you know, men with, you know, men being on board rocket ships going to the moon. And it inspired a whole generation of, of people to be engineers and to, and to, you know, to go down that path. And so it was kind of fun to look out the moon and say that, you know, I, I would love to have gone to the moon. I got asked the other day, would I go to Mars? If somebody said, yeah, I'd go to Mars. I wouldn't stay. You know, we got a pretty neat thing here. And I, I really, as an astronaut, I think I, you realize that, you know, we're very fortunate to live on this beautiful planet. And especially when you're like that one time on the end of the space station, hanging on by a thumb and a forefinger, you're looking out past the limit of the earth out into the vastness of the universe. And there's nothing between me and whatever else is out there. It's a pretty humbling, pretty humbling feeling. But you look down and you realize that this is where you're from. This is where you will be the rest of your life. This is where your kids will grow up, your grandkids, your great-grandkids. And it's your responsibility to protect it. And I think we get a, that's called the overview effect. And you get this real sincere appreciation for how fortunate we are because, you know, exploring the moon's great. You know, let's go to the moon. If, if, if we can go and learn something that will make life on Earth better, yeah. If we go to Mars, we learn something on Mars and make life on Earth better, that's great. Well, if we go to Mars thinking Mars is our next step foothold in the solar system because life on Earth is going to be untenable at some point in time, we don't pay attention to making life tenable on Earth. We have no business going to Mars, right? We should take care of our planet here because this is where we'll be for the, for the rest of eternity, I, I, would, I would hope, as long as we take care of it. And there are people in position of power right now that don't think that's true. And that 
really upsets me. <laughs> I don't like that. We want to share with you a neighbor story from around the world, as we do in this podcast. This one is from Pennsylvania. It's actually from a town called Mechanicsville, Pennsylvania, which okay. is quite funny, given your history as, is, a, yeah. as a mechanic. Oh, you do know where that is. Amazing. Yeah. So um, I, we picked this story for you because it specifically talks about how neighbors helped each other to get back on track when they were feeling a little bit lost. So Keith was a retired painter in Mechanicsville, and he was recently evicted from his apartment, and he was unable to make his rent due to a physical disability. He had a pile of medical bills and just was hitting a lot of economic hardships. So he posted on Nextdoor and asked his neighbors for non-perishable food items and a ride to the bank, which was too far for him to walk to. The initial community response was absolutely incredible. As neighbors were putting up their hands, they offered him a bike. They offered him home-cooked meals, canned goods. They donated money. They gave him advice on local services and much, much more. So to organize that outpouring of help, a few neighbors actually then coordinated efforts of donations and housing assistance. And Tara was a neighbor who dropped off some essential items for Keith and realized she had actually met him before after he painted her house back in 2015. So about 400 comments later, GoFundMe account was started and neighbors raised enough funds for Keith to stay at a nearby hotel at a lower rate. So basically Mm -hmm. neighbors came together and then they eventually found a room for Keith to rent at a nearby home and they raised some money to pay for furniture for the home. And it all came down to the neighbors and Keith did a special call out just saying how he was absolutely humbled by the kindness of strangers. So what do you think about that story? Well, that's fabulous. I think when you when you find yourself in a hardship, I'll, you know, I'll go back to when I was in college. I remember doing something the other day and I realized that the meal I paid for was my bank account when I was in college. You know, I had 50 bucks. I just spent $57 on dinner and I realized that was more than I had in my bank account when I was a kid. And you realize that you make do in that time. My mom used to send me $5 in the mail and say, between you, me, and the fence post, here's $5 to get you through the week. And I go to Leon Jesse's Pizza and I'll buy a slice of pizza. <laughs> and you realize that, you know, people, I, I look for jobs. I worked in a knife shop. I had people, I got, you know, I went to school part-time. I think the idea of, of when you find somebody that's in a position that, that's less fortunate than you, that it's your responsibility if you have the means to be able to do that, you know, to help them out. Uh, I, you know, I, I see a lot of folks, you know, panhandling on street corners and things like that. And I'm kind of, and I've, I've known stories of people panhandling street corners, make a lot of money doing it. And that's why they, that's why someone do it. But if I see somebody that's a veteran, has lost a leg, is in a wheelchair or something, you know, that is a physical disability where they cannot get that job, you know, then that, that makes more sense to me. And, and I'd be more than happy to help somebody out in that situation. This is where we get to have a bit of fun, John, and we're going to play our kind carousel where we get to ask you all kinds of questions. So, Oh, yeehaw, look out. Here we go. Here we go. What kind of things do you like to do now to keep that adrenaline rush and that sense of adventure that you obviously love? Fly, fly and ski, fly and ski, fly and ski, ski and fly. <laughs> do you <laughs> fly and ski, like helicopter, heli-ski? Is that, is that no, in there somewhere? I, not, I'd like to do that. No, I, uh, I've, I've ski. I've, uh, done a float plane. I've uh, got a float rating. Uh, I've, you know, been on a, like a, a plane with uh, floats on it. Uh, I have a small plane that has big tires on it. I like to land in the back country, I like to land on small runways. You can fly a jet at 700 miles an hour, or you can land an airplane to, at 60 and it's going to be just as exciting and just as challenging, you know, at hundred feet. It is at, at you know, 40,000 feet. Okay. There's a lot of, a lot of movies out there about space, mm-hmm. favorite mm-hmm. space movie. 
favorite space movie that is realistic was Apollo 13 uh, with Tom Hanks, um, Kevin Bacon. Uh, they were um, uh, they recreated the weightlessness in a in a zero g airplane. They actually recreated that, and they were actually weightless in those. They did a really good job to recreate you know the problem solving that went with it. So that was that's my top one. Second one's probably The Martian. We haven't been to the haven't been to the, haven't been to Mars. We had a really good movie. If you, there's a couple liberties, obviously. But it's a problem-solving movie, and the guy had to solve a problem that was a pretty huge problem, and he did a really remarkable job of doing it. And I like that that part of it. The book is different than the movie in terms of he gets like down into the mathematics. You know, how deep does a poop have to be to grow a potato? <laughs> you know, and that was that was pretty cool. But you know, they, they didn't talk about that in the movie. Um, so that'd be the second, my second favorite. Yeah, Armageddon, awesome. Gravity, all those space movies. You look at him, you go, no, no, <laughs> no, no, don't go there. Top Gun Maverick, I turned it off. <laughs> I, I got I got just just the point when Tom when Tom Cruise went blasting through the gate to a top secret Air Force base, had a Navy airplane in it, and the guards didn't shoot him. They yeah. Went, you know, <laughs> but did you uh, like the he, did you like the first Top Gun though? You know, I had just joined the Navy when Top Gun came out, so we all wanted to fly a 14. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and but, you know, I worked with a lot of guys that actually flew in that movie uh, back in the day. So yeah, it's it's. Uh, I have to suspend my belief, which is kind of hard sometimes when you, uh, you know, when you've, you've done it for a living. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Well, who's going to play you in a movie? Who would it be? Who would you want to play you? <laughs> Someone actually me. asked me this last night, and I was like, it was funny because I was at a table of people who we could pick. We could literally pick who was going to play everyone else, and then it got to me, and I was like, I don't know. So who's going to play you? Oh, gee whiz! I I'm, well, early on, I'll, I'll go back when I joined the Navy. Um, I got to the Navy and I, I saw the movie Officer and a Gentleman, right? Richard Gere, you know, played the guy in the, in the movie. Well, his, his name was Zach Mayo. When I got to, when I got to Aviation Officer Candidate School, I kid you not, the back of my t-shirt said Real Mayonnaise because they said I looked like Richard Gere, you know? I could see that. I actually could. Now that you mentioned that, I think that's a great call. I'm, way, yeah. way, way back in the day, I have Real Mayonnaise in the back of my t-shirt was pretty funny. <laughs> and, and a gunny, the gunnery sergeant gave me a hard time about it, so... <laughs> um, okay, what kind of music did you listen to when you were in space? <laughs> oh, I had 2001 A Space Odyssey uh, CD. <laughs> I remember listening to that. That was pretty cool to listen to that. I had a, I had a, a thing from Jack Gladstone, a Blackfeet artist. Uh, uh, he wrote Buffalo Cafe. I flew his CD in space as well. It's a great, he's got some great uh, songs. You know, um, Oh, gee, who else? I took ZZ Top, took Heart, you know, I took all the classic, you know, classic rock stuff that I'd grown up. Uh, took some Will Ackerman. You know, I loved always just being able to put the heads, headset on, look out the window and listen to some real good instrumental music. Um, my wake up music was ZZ Top. Every, every crew gets a wake up, their, their family will pick a, a song uh, to play. And that's the first thing you hear when they turn on the radio, they turn on the radio, the, um, when they contact you to, for your wake-up music, and mine was uh, Give Me All Your Lovin' by ZZ Top. So. Oh, my gosh. Hilarious. <laughs> Such a good song. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. Okay, and last question. What was the first thing you wanted to eat when you got back to Earth? First thing I wanted to eat. I want to keep Are something down. I want to keep <laughs> something down because I, I, I was thrown up. I was really nauseated when I came home, so I wasn't uh, – I didn't really have a – you know, the food, the food I had in space was great. We had shrimp cocktail. I had chicken, had chicken fajitas. Uh, but was it like tortillas. real shrimp? It wasn't like the, the, it was, the it was dry. It was dehydrated. It was dehydrated. And that, and that was good. Re yeah, really? rehydrated. What I liked about it was the cocktail sauce. You know, the cocktail mm. sauce, one of the problems about being in space is the, the uh, fluid shift that occurs from being weightless 
gets you congested. Your face gets kind of puffy. And, you know, you'll see that. You look at somebody that you're really familiar with, you go, man, they're, they're really fat. Their face will boom, kind of puffs out. But you, you get dehydrated, but you get very congested. And so uh, shrimp cocktail is fabulous. I mean, because you're eating that horseradish and it goes, mm. Uh, if oh I had sriracha, I, I would have taken sriracha sauce. I've seen the guys with bottles of sriracha sauce on Space Station. That would have been, you want something spicy. Yeah. Um, food's kind of bland. Your taste buds change a little bit in space. So I always wanted, wanted spicy foods. I want to tell everyone what you've got coming up. I think you have an IMAX movie coming out soon, don't you? Are we allowed to mention that? Yes, ma'am. We have IMAX. It came out about two years ago, right at the beginning of COVID. We premiered it. It's called Into Nature's Wild. Here in the United States, it's called Into America's Wild, but overseas, it's Into Nature's Wild. It's a 40-minute IMAX movie where myself and a young lady named Ariel Tweedo, who's a Nupiak, uh, Inuit from the coast of Alaska, uh, we travel across the United States, uh, going to some really out-of-the-way places and meeting some really neat people that, uh, that inhabit these locations. And we tell these really neat stories in a big IMAX format. Just it was a fabulous experience. But we premiered it right beginning of COVID, so things came to a grinding halt. I believe I'm going to be in Melbourne at some point in time, I believe in Sydney. So if there's a, if there is a uh, IMAX uh, theater near you that is uh, like a museum or a science center, uh, there's a very good chance they'll show that. And if you go to uh, intonatureswild.com, uh, they'll list theaters. And if you go down, they'll go international and you'll see in Australia where it may be showing either now or TBD. John, thank you so much for your time today. We absolutely love talking to you. Of course, if you want to start connecting with your neighbors anywhere in the world, you can download the Nextdoor app or go to nextdoor.com. One, one last thing, which is kind of cool. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? You ever heard that? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Is this, I can't figure out if you're telling me a joke right now or asking well, me a question. It is. Pra- <laughs> practice, 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 practice. That's what they say. Well, guess what? I'm going to be playing Carnegie Hall March 9th with the Apollo Chamber Players in uh, Houston, Texas. A friend of mine, Jared Tate, who's a Chickasaw uh, classical composer, he composed a four-part movement, and I narrate three of those. And they're stories about the moon, native stories about the moon. Uh, we have a CD out, and guess what? We are going to go and play Carnegie Hall March 9th this year, and I get to play Carnegie Hall. What? Not bad that is for so you know, cool. Yeah, pretty cool. That is so cool. Your bucket list is just tick, 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 tick. Like, what's what's left on there? Honestly, what's no, left fun. on there? <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.